Welcome to Nutrition Lifestyles Podcast. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. So Joanne, I have a quick question for you. On average, how many hours of sleep do you get each night? Huh. So I don't know if Dr. Amy, the expert that we're about to interview, is going to call what I'm doing sleeping. But y'all know that I'm a mom and my life is very busy. So I would say that I go to sleep at around 11 to 11.30 on most nights. But there are nights when my body is like, I don't know what you're doing, but I tired. <laughs> and my husband will tell me that he finds me asleep like at nine when he comes upstairs. And my Mac is still on my um, lap and I'm just dead asleep. So with my month, five month old, you know, he's waking up every two hours to eat in the middle of the night. So my sleep is pretty much broken. You know, I don't get a straight seven hours or a straight six hours. So I would say it's about six hours maybe right now, but it's broken. So most days I am feeling drained. Wow. That I can imagine. I can just imagine with Jalen. So for me, I get no less than seven hours of sleep. So my body starts to shut down at about 8 p.m. And if you guys know me in real life, I always say that I'm a grandma because I like (laughs) to be in I like to be in bed early. But I do try to get to bed. I try to get to bed at nine. But as of lately, that hasn't been happening. So I'm in bed by like 10 p.m. the latest. But let me tell you this, if I don't get at least seven hours of sleep, I cannot function. Like I wake up the next morning and I have a headache right in like the left side of my face near my orbital pad. Like that's where the the headache is. So I have to get at least seven. I I would love to get seven hours right now if I could of uninterrupted sleep. But I feel you on that. Like last night I woke up at around three and I couldn't go back to sleep. And because of that, like right now, I feel like I'm not in my body. I feel weird. And if I'm really lacking a sleep of sleep, I'll get a headache too. So as we can see, like sleep is a very important thing. I remember when I was younger, I really didn't think sleep was all that. But I'm finding out as I age, mm-hmm. sleep is, for lack of a better words, sleep is sexy. So we welcome Dr. Amy Bender to the podcast. She is a senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center. She has developed sleep optimization strategies for Canadian Olympics, as well as other professional teams. And for the dietitian junkies out there, she presented her research on the importance of sleep at the last Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. So welcome to the show, Dr. Amy. Welcome. I'm excited to be here. So Dr. Amy, to begin, sleep is a little bit more complex than we ever thought or we think that it is. So I'm going to start off by having you define a few terms for the audience so that we're just all on the same page. So I'm going to give you um, a couple of them, or I'm going to give them to you a couple at a time. So can you please define for us what sleep deprivation and sleep restriction is? Sure. Um, You know, for the average person, they're basically the same thing. Uh, So for example, the other day, my son was sick, so I ended up getting horrible sleep two nights in a row. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was in trouble when I missed my elevator stop. 
And in that instance, I would say I'm sleep deprived or I'm sleep restricted. So in the real world, I guess I would say that they're pretty much the same thing. But the difference comes when you're looking at the sleep research. So sleep deprivation is typically an acute period of time without sleep, usually about uh, a full night of sleep. So you miss a full night of sleep. They call that uh, total sleep deprivation. Mm. Whereas sleep restriction is when you're getting some sleep, typically at least four hours, and this is occurring for multiple nights in a row. So I think the distinction comes is when you're looking at the research. Okay. So what about sleep cycle? How would you define that? Well, sleep cycle, there's two main states of sleep. So there's non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM sleep and rapid eye movement sleep or not or REM sleep. Mm-hmm. And so non-REM sleep, it's composed of three different stages. So you have stage one, which is the lightest stage of sleep. Stage two, which is the most amount of stage that we're getting, about 50% of the night is is during non-REM stage two. And then we have non-REM stage three, which is our deepest state of sleep. And then we cycle from that non-REM sleep into REM sleep in about 90 minutes. And so that's a complete sleep cycle is when you cycle from non-REM to REM. And this typically happens five or six times throughout the night. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm trying to figure out where I fall into here as I'm I'm listening to you define these terms in regards to how much sleep I'm not getting. So... (laughs) So how would you define sleep quality and sleep quantity? Sure. So um, typically when I'm giving a lecture, I'll include sleep quantity, sleep quality, and sleep timing. Mm. And so these three factors are, are key to getting optimal amount of sleep. And so sleep quantity is the amount of sleep that you're getting. Um, So across a 24 hour day, so that includes napping, or it includes whether or not you're sleeping during the day or at night, that is sleep quantity, the amount of sleep that you're getting. But then there's also sleep quality, which is how, how optimal is that sleep? So is there a lot of awakenings occurring? If you have a newborn, like in your case, (laughs) um, And so sleep quality is important as well, because I could tell you to get 10 hours of sleep, but if you're not getting good quality sleep, um, you know, you won't wake up feeling refreshed. So that quality is important as well. So being able to fall asleep relatively quickly, less than 30 minutes, and then not wake up too many times during the night, you know, one or two awakenings for about 20 minutes could be normal. Um, Any more than that, and we start to get poor sleep quality. But then there's Mm. also the timing of the sleep. Okay. So um, timing your sleep in line with your melatonin. So melatonin is that sleepiness hormone starts, gets to be released about two hours before bedtime. And so trying to time your sleep in line with your biology is another important factor. So I have a question because, you know, I'm looking at sleep quality, sleep quantity, sleep timing, like as a general rule, taking all those definitions into consideration, how much 
quote unquote sleep should adults really get on a daily mm-hmm. basis? It, it seems like a really easy question, but it's actually pretty difficult to answer just because there's a lot of variability in the amount of sleep people need. So when you're younger, you need more sleep mm-hmm. than potentially when you're older. Um, the short answer though, is a minimum of seven hours. Mm-hmm. So we want to aim for at least seven hours day in and day out. For me, I feel good on about seven and a half hours. For someone else, it may be eight hours or it may even be seven hours. And there's a few lucky individuals out there who are considered short sleepers. And so one study recently found a father-son duo that were getting five and a half hours and like four hours with absolutely no memory impairments. But... The chances are that this is you is very small. So in that particular gene mutation, they found that it was only about one in 4 million people. (laughs) So it is extremely rare for people to perform well on less than seven hours. Yeah, I'm probably one of those people. I can't perform very well at all (laughs) um, if I haven't had enough sleep. As a matter of fact, as you Um, No, I have a five month old and my sleep is pretty much broken. So every two hours I'm waking up to feed him and I find myself even sleeping in on Saturdays to try to catch up. And so I have this Apple watch and I have a, um, a sleep pattern, I guess it's called app on there. And for the most part, it's like my sleep is quality is 54%, 60%. I don't know how accurate those things are. But what I want to ask you is, is there really a way for me and others to catch up in their sleep? Is there such a thing as catching up on your sleep? I believe so. Now, many of my sleep scientists colleagues actually don't believe you can catch up on sleep. But the reason I think that you can is this reason yourself. Parents are sleep deprived. And one study actually found that you don't get back. Now, this is kind of depressing news, but you don't actually get back to pre-pregnancy sleep levels until the child is six years old. (laughs) So this is, I have a two-year-old too, so I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this as well. Um, so with years of sleep deprivation, even with all of those years of sleep deprivation, there's still parents still outlive non-parents. So for me, um, that's why I think we can make up for lost sleep. And there has been some work kind of looking at the opposite. So banking sleep leading into a sleep deprivation has also shown to be useful. And um, so Mm. when people get more sleep leading into sleep deprivation, they find that they outperform those people who just get their normal amount of sleep. Mm. So I think Mm. you can recover from sleep loss and you can also do the reverse bank sleep leading into sleep loss. Um, You know, when you said six years old, I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) This is what I'm looking forward to one day. But I, I, I do have a, another question, kind of piggybacking on what Joanne said. So for someone who, because I know earlier you defined that sleep deprivation is like 
acutely um, missing sleep. So if someone is in chronic sleep deprivation, Mm. how can this impact their mental as well as physical health? Mm -hmm. It it does. So it, it does affect, it can affect. So there's higher risk for cardiovascular disease, There's higher Mm -hmm. risk for obesity. There's higher risk for diabetes. There's higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. When someone is chronically sleep deprived, not getting enough sleep day in and day out, potentially suffering from a sleep disorder for years on end. Um, There have been studies that shown those types of associations between short sleep and all of these different diseases as well as um, higher levels of mortality as well. So there is, there is higher risk Uh of those type of health problems when someone is not getting enough sleep. Okay. And I think, you know, linking that with the, the data that I mentioned earlier with parents being chronically sleep deprived, however, they seem to recover from that. It's probably more like, years and years and years of poor sleep, poor quality sleep, not getting enough sleep is when these risk factors pop up. Okay. So since we're talking about the physical aspects of um, sleep or how sleep can affect you physically, since we are dietitians, you know, we always try to correlate everything to nutrition and see how it affects our nutrition um, wellness. So, Dr. Amy, I want to ask you, how does sleep or lack thereof affect how we make our food choices, our food intake, or, you know, what we, how we eat? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, there's been studies that have shown that sleep deprivation or chronic sleep restriction impacts our ghrelin and leptin levels. Wow. So... We, we have more ghrelin being released, so we feel hungrier. We have less leptin, so we don't feel as full with sleep deprivation. So that, that definitely impacts the caloric intake. And so one study found a meta-analysis, so it looked at multiple different studies and found that there was about an average increase of 500 calories per day mm-hmm. with sleep restriction day in and day out. So um, it also impacts the food choices. So there's effects on the brain as well. So there's kind of a deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, which influence our decision making. And so people tend to eat less fruits and vegetables when they're sleep deprived, crave more of the carbs and crave more of the fats when they're sleep deprived, related to the leptin and ghrelin, but as well as the deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. Oh my goodness. That is information that I did not know, especially with the deactivation of the frontal cortex. Cause I feel like, so is it, is it safe to say that when you're sleep deprived, that your body just craves fat and sugar? Yes. Yes. They've found, they've found that to be the case in multiple different studies. Wow. So I have this other question. So from looking at your research a bit, what role does fiber play in promoting or the lack thereof um, sleep? Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's been a few studies and um, pretty much kind of correlating with subjective measures of sleep. There may have been one actually looking at objective measures, but generally what they find is that higher fiber intake leads to deeper levels of sleep. So a deeper level of the non-REM stage three, which is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, We start to lose some of that non-REM stage three, that deepest stage of sleep as we age. So once we start hitting into our mid 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, we start to really decrease the amount of deep sleep that we're getting. And so fiber intake could be a way to try and promote or get back some of that deeper stage of sleep, which is really important for a growth hormone is being released during the deepest stage of sleep. Yeah, so fiber could be a good way to to promote some of that deep sleep. So basically, someone who is adhering to more of a plant-based diet would do better with their sleep cycles than someone who's not. Is this a loaded question? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm not promoting plant-based diet or non-plant-based diet. Um, It's just a question. Yeah, no, no. I didn't, I I don't know um, kind of what your theory is on nutrition anyways. But, But they do find that the Mediterranean diet is associated with better sleep quality, particularly less insomnia symptoms. So people have an easier time falling asleep and an easier time maintaining sleep when looking at or when consuming like a Mediterranean diet. But it's all, it's not necessarily experimental. It's kind of correlational. So those people have better sleep quality, um, not necessarily causation. But in general, yeah, there are some mixed results. So in particular, and maybe we can put a link to this really good review by, I think it was St. Onge in 2016. Um, Mm. They do a review on nutrition, the effects of diet on sleep quality. Mm. And so maybe we can put a link for people to check that out if they want. But they found that high carb diets potentially reduce the amount of time that it takes you to fall asleep but it also reduces the deep sleep that you're getting and then it increases REM. So there's kind of benefits and drawbacks to a high carb diet. And then if you're looking at a high fat diet, same thing, there's benefits and drawbacks when it comes to sleep. And so a high fat diet promotes deep sleep, but there's a cost because it lowers the amount of REM sleep that you're getting and it increases the amount of many like many awakenings during the night. So there's kind of some costs and benefits depending on the diet that you're consuming. Mm, That's pretty funny Um, because, you know, I asked that question because plant-based vegan diets are very popular nowadays. And I'm sure someone is probably wondering as they're listening to us, how do those diets um, play into this? And it's so funny as to what you just said, um, because we are always preaching moderation and it sounds to me, you know, varying your diet and um, having a moderate intake of just, you know, everything and not focusing on one specific macronutrient and eliminating another macronutrient is what's best for you when it comes to sleep. 
Yes, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think that's a good summary. There's, you know, everything in moderation and um, not going all out on a specific diet. Mm -hmm. um, If you're really thinking about how it can impact your sleep. You know, I I do have another question. I'm I'm just going to throw this one in here, Dr. Amy. So when you were speaking about the benefits and the drawbacks of a high carbohydrate diet, like the first person that popped in my mind for some reason, and I think it's because Joanne and I, we were actually talking about him off season in season one was Michael Phelps and Mm. like how much calories and carbohydrates he consumed, you know, just to do his job. And I'm thinking about, you know, athletes that that carb load and the amount of sleep that they get, like, give us an idea, um, athletes, like how, what is how much sleep do they get in order to perform at their utmost? Because I know you've worked with athletes before. Yes. Um, So there's this really cool infographic. And I'm And it was back in, I don't know, 2011. So I'm working on actually updating it with recent athletes. But it found that athletes such as LeBron James reported 12 hours of sleep per day. Mm. Roger Federer, 10 to 12 hours. Michelle Wee, 8 to 10 hours. You know, so athletes in general, I think, are really prioritizing sleep. And the older they get, you know, like Tom Brady is going to bed at 8 p.m., you know. So um, the older that they get in in their career, the more that they really prioritize sleep because they know it can help them um, benefit their performance. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a lot of sleep they're getting that I'm not. <laughs> so finally, Dr. Amy, let's talk about chronotype. Yes, yes. What is it? Is it really a thing? And if it is, is there a way for a person to change their chronotype? It is. It is a thing. Um, it's basically your preference for being an evening type or night owl, an early bird. Um, or people fall somewhere in between. So about 15% of us are night owls, 15% are morning types, and the rest of us kind of fall in between. And it's important to note that that chronotype changes across the lifespan. Mm. So with younger children, they lean more towards being a morning type, and then they transition to being an evening type in adolescence and early adulthood. And then basically we revert back to morningness starting in about our 40s and 50s. And so the main point though here is that it is all driven by biology. So telling a teenager to go to bed early because they have a 6 a.m. weight training session is just, it's not going to work because their melatonin is released later. And so they're not tired until later. Now, you mentioned, can we change it? So there are certain things that we can do to help in that instance if we have a teen having to wake up really early for school. And so what's really important in those situations is to block light late at night. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be having bright screens from the electronics, bright lights on at night, because that's going to reduce your melatonin, that sleepiness hormone and make it harder for you to fall asleep. So we wanna wear sunglasses even at night or blue blocking glasses, and that will help to kind of promote that melatonin. 
But then on the in the morning, we want to get lots of bright light because that's going to kind of cue into our our brain that it's time to wake up and it's going to help shift the rhythms earlier. So um, light is an important factor in that. And I would say if you want to, let's say you want to stay up later, um, you would want to do the opposite. So you would want to get light in the evening uh, to help you go to bed later and then block light in the morning um, if you have a situation where you go to bed too early and and you don't like that, that's kind of what you would want to do in that situation. That is very, a very good piece of advice. Like recently, I bought some really, really, really dark curtains for my bedroom because I realized that the street light was right there just peeking in. And I can definitely say that it has changed up my sleep a bit. What other pieces of of advice can you give our audience to really promote a good night's sleep? Like I know like cell phones are huge nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned the blackout blinds uh, because I recently moved to this house where I'm at now. And same thing, you know, we, I just had some, there were just some regular blinds on there and the, the light from the street light would come into my bedroom and like, it was like almost like, you know, right in line with my eyes. So I ended up getting some blackout blinds to pull down and then like curtains, blackout blind curtains. And it's made a huge difference. So I think that's important for people to make sure that your sleeping environment is cool, dark, and quiet is really important. And then, like you mentioned, the screens from the devices, it tells our brain to wake up and it impacts our melatonin. So trying to turn the screens off about an hour before bedtime and then start doing having a bedtime routine, doing relaxing activities maybe taking a bath or a shower um, will kind of help it make it easier to fall asleep. And then there's other techniques. I know for Joanne, um, you may have issues maybe having a hard time going back to sleep after after the baby wakes you up. And so having techniques such as um, breathing exercises, so the four, seven, eight breathing, where you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, and then breathe out for eight. And you do that at least four times helps kind of activate the relaxation uh, system. And then there's another really cool technique that I like, it's called the cognitive shuffle. And so you think of a five letter word, say bedtime, and you imagine all the objects that you can that start with B. So ball, baby, bag, bus. And when you can't think of any more, you move on to the next letter. So E would be eagle, ear, egg. And you and you go you go throughout those letters. And by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll be sound asleep. So having mm. some of those techniques to help you fall asleep, um, potentially even writing a to-do list. So if you... This is really good before bedtime to write a to-do list, write everything you need to do on a piece of paper, 
and then put it away and it helps kind of offload those thoughts from your mind to make it uh, easier for you to fall asleep. Oh, okay. So, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, because one of the things that you recommended was having a quiet space. And I'm thinking about people who like to sleep in um, like waves, like ocean waves and birds, not birds chirping, but you know what I'm saying? Is that beneficial at all? Um, I think there's, there's, it's more based on individual preference. So, um, if you feel like you sleep better with white noise or waves, um, uh, one, one pink noise is kind of the new thing right now. So it basically sounds like a waterfall. Um, they've shown that pink noise when it's linked with your brain waves, it's a little more, bit more complicated, um, can actually increase the amount of deep sleep that you're getting and improve memory in older adults. And so I think, um, you know, it's based on kind of personal preference. Do you like it extremely quiet? In that case, you probably want to wear uh, earplugs or do you like more of that white noise helps you sleep better? Um, then go for it. Mm, okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amy. Thank you for answering our questions and enlightening us on sleep cycles. And, you know, it's good for me to know that I can't really change my kids' um, chronotype right now because no matter what time they go to sleep at night, they're up at six, seven in the morning waking us up. <laughs> so it's good to know that. Everyone out listening to us, if you guys have any questions for Dr. Amy, please let us know. Go on our Facebook page and please tell your friends about our podcast and about this episode and rate us five stars. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Dr. Amy. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.